This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored. My chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I sit down with my guests to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. As a young boy, Trevor Kovic knew that he wanted to be a fishing guide. Born and raised in Washington State, he's always had a love for anadromous fish. In this episode of Anchored, we discuss fishing for Chinook salmon and steelhead, water columns, fishing lanes, following the fish migration, and Trevor's controversial outlook on current fishing stocks. I was born in Issaquah, Washington, but kind of like I lived kind of on the outskirts and kind of closer to a place called Hobart, which is more out in the sticks. Um, so it's just a little bit east of Seattle. And my parents, of course, had a place there. And uh, and so, and it was just me and my brother. And they were both uh, mechanics at Boeing, essentially. So building airplanes and whatnot. So I was at Washington, essentially. Uh, you know, we had a upbringing of being in the outdoors. My dad was a saltwater guy. My uncle was a, a fly fisherman. One of my other uncles was a fly fisherman. So we had, we kind of had a well-rounded experience as far as being outside and, and doing stuff like that and getting in trouble. Did you say both of your parents worked for Boeing? So both my parents worked for Boeing. My, uh, um, my mom and dad were, were both mechanics. My mom, uh, did like a lot of riveting. My dad was kind of a, uh, he was an electrician on, or, uh, yeah, electrician on the, uh, triple seven. And so they met there. Um, and then my dad, uh, 
he had just like started working there for six months and the a guy hit him off his motorcycle and then he was in a coma for a while and in the hospital and either way they met at Boeing through a kind of like a, a mutual friend and then you know went from there and uh so blue collar family uh you know I remember being like four years old when when the Boeing everybody be on strike and I'd be out next to the road next to a burn barrel holding like the picket signs because everybody's on strike and and whatnot so but you know we had a we had a decent upbringing and you know always in the outdoors but uh, nothing fancy I know that everyone was was into angling growing up, but do you remember mm-hmm. your first experience out there? Like the real, the first real substantial one. Uh, the first experience. Ooh. I was probably sitting on my dad's lap on his float tube at a place uh, called Lake Chapaca, uh, which is up in uh, North Central Washington. It's a it's a lake out in the middle of nowhere. And it's a lake with it. When we started going there, um, there was like, you know, eight or 10 other people that fished it, you know, and, uh, and it was great trout fishing and it was like, and it was essentially surrounded by mountains and it, and you had to go up this crazy grade and, uh, all the way to get up there. And it took a long time and you get out to this place and it's just beautiful. And there's a bunch of fish like cruising reeds and, and it, it was, it was pretty wild. And, uh, and of course I couldn't cast or nothing, but my dad, he dropped me on his float tube and he'd paddle out there and he'd throw a mayfly out there and fish would eat it and hook it. Like hand me the rod, kind of reel it in. And then I would say the the next thing would probably be, uh, going out salmon fishing out in the Strait of Juan de Fuca, uh, between Vancouver Island and then the Olympic Peninsula. You know, that's something I, I really remember from, from my childhood because you know when you're a kid your dad wakes you up early at like you know 4 35 a.m and i remember he fished with a guy named billy gray and he had this single cab truck and my brother and i would have to hop in the back of the truck underneath the canopy and we we're sitting on buckets and we'd drive down to the marina in the dark and we're sitting in these buckets and we'd go out in the in the ocean, of course, when we're that young, we're, we're getting sick a lot, right? Especially when the, the big slow rollers start to start to happen. So we're we're chumming fish up uh, by puking in the water and we're reeling in silvers and, and stuff like that. And then after silver fishing, we go bottom fishing. And uh, no, it was a good time because uh, that was the next thing about my parents working at Boeing. So when my dad worked at Boeing, he met a bunch of other fishermen and he went in on a piece of property up there on a river called the CQ river, which is right next to the town of CQ, which is a little Marina right there in the Strait of Juan de Fuca. So we were four minutes from the Marina and right out in front, we had a river that was had sea run cutthroat in it and steelhead. And, and it was, it was really neat. No doubt. Well, when I think of you, I think of you as obviously somebody in the fly fishing industry, but I think of you as kind of being the quintessential guide. And, you know, just because I feel like you guide, you have famous flies, you, um, you, you're sponsored by various companies. I just think of you as, as being like the epitome of the industry. And I want to talk about if that's a fair assumption, how you got there, all of that fun stuff. So, um, that's kind of the road I'm going to go down if you don't mind taking me there. No, that's fine. That's fine. I mean, any any questions, uh, throw them throw them at me. Yeah. Um, 
How did it start? Well, so I I always wanted to be a fishing guide. Or I always oh, loved did. fishing because I would well well the, here's the thing. So like I'd be sitting in class at school and my mind would be somewhere else. Okay. I didn't give a shit about any of the stuff going on in there. I was thinking about my my you know when I was going fishing next, essentially, because like that was the highlight of my of my year, you know, and my and my dad he always took us to do kind of fun stuff. Like he would he would take me and my brother out of school early, like on Friday, and and everybody's like, Oh, do you gotta go to the doctor? And I'd be like, Yeah. And he'd take us up to the ski slope and we'd go skiing, you know? And uh uh like and then it got to where I was in high school and I had it so now I had a driver's license and and then I had friends in the in the attendance office, right? And so I would have my friends in the attendance office mark me and my buddies is there and we would blast out the Olympic Peninsula and we'd go fishing for three days. And my parents thought we were leaving after school and we would just go for three days and we're all marked up in class. Everything's great. And then we get an extra day of fishing and, and what mama don't know, don't hurt her. So, um, don't listen, mom, so don't say mom about this episode. <laughs> no, shoot. She's, she's, she raised two boys. She's fine. She was, uh, like I said, she was a mechanic at Boeing. She's a tough, she's a tough woman. Um, so she doesn't really get phased by much. Uh, but yeah, I just look forward to fishing. And I think it was when I knew I really wanted to be a fishing guide was one summer. I think it was my, oh man, it was probably my freshman year. It was my freshman year in high school. Um, my dad and my uncle go, Hey, we're going to go do a trip. We're going to go do a float trip in Alaska. And we went up and floated the connect river from the lake all the way down. Um, so I missed a big chunk of my football practice and my coach was not stoked with me. In fact, he benched me for like, uh, uh, half a game for it because I missed, uh, I missed a week of practice. And so he, uh, so we go float the entire connect talk river and caught a bunch of fish, got bit by a bunch of mosquitoes. And we get down almost all the way to the bottom of the river. And there is a fishing, there's two fishing guides or, or a couple fishing guides and it's silver season. And the fishing guide knew my uncle, John Kovich. And he goes, Hey man, come in here. And he, uh, so he brought us in and the fishing guy's name was Jay Robeson and he was fishing with George Cook and Raz Reed. Okay. Which, which a lot of people know who those guys are. And they go, yeah. and they go, Hey, let the, let, let, let you guys, let the kids come and fish. And me and my brother went in there. We banged a couple silvers and I was just like, dude, this place is freaking awesome. And, uh, Jay look goes, Hey man, when you turn 18, you should give me a call and I'll see if I can give you, give you a job. And so, and so, uh, fast forward, like never had, hadn't talked to Jay or anything, didn't have his number, nothing. And, uh, I'm, I just gotten out of high school and I'm banging nails on a framing crew in Issaquah. And I, uh, like I'm in a weird relationship at the time, like framing it's, uh, it didn't pay that good. And so I went into my local fly shop, Creekside Angling Company, and I, I went in there and there was Jay Robeson. 
And I literally asked him for a job on the spot, right? I go, hey, like, can I get a job? And he's like, uh, yeah, you can. Uh, you got to be a camp hand first, and then we'll see what you can do from there, right? So, you know, and, you know, I got, you know, I don't have a shred of facial hair. I've got earrings. You know, I look like a like a punk kid. And, uh, and I remember I went and met the boss of the, of Alaska West, which was the Alaska West, which was the operation I was going to work for. And he looked at me and was like, dude, what is, you're bringing me this kid. And, but I had chalk line marks on my hands from frame that day. So he knew I was a worker, even though I looked like a punk and, uh, either way, got on a plane and, uh, and went and worked that summer. And I was essentially a camp hand. I cleaned out houses. I, I changed propane tanks. I cleaned out grease traps for the kitchen. I dug ditches. I did everything and, uh, and tried to just kind of find my way in. And so, but I did that and I got a ton of fishing time in. So, cause I got my, all my work done and I go fishing for the rest of the day and I go, you know, this is pretty sweet. I can fish a lot. Like, why would I want to be a fishing guide? And plus you'd have the guides coming back at the end of the day and they would talk about, Oh, this client sucked or this was horrible or blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, dude, this doesn't sound cool at all. So I, uh, <laughs> I essentially was a camp hand and I was, and then I went to running fuel and doing all this other crap. And, uh, finally one day it was like my second season or third season in there. I'm running fuel. Oh, and my You did two or three seasons of this camp work. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wow, and, okay. uh, because I, cause I loved it and, and because I didn't, I didn't have to talk with the clients. Like I had a, um, you know, uh, I didn't know how I was going to be around people, especially in the boat, because quite frankly, some people, they get on your nerves and I didn't know, I, I didn't know how it would be as a people person. So I go, you know, this is a lot of fun. I'm just going to, bust out my work and then I'm going to go fish. And so, and I remember, uh, and so the, and so the year that I started guiding, so I'm putting, I'm putting a trim up on a shower house door on a shower house. We just built and my boss, Rick, he, and by the way, nobody caught a King yet. We, it's Chinook season and nobody caught a King yet on the connect talk river. And we're like two or three days in the season, which is, which, you know, that first week can be, can be kind of spotty. And he goes, Hey, I need to go pick this guy up at the airport and take him fishing for a couple hours. His name's Dick Maddox. Like, so like drop your tool bags and go. So I dropped my tool bags, went and grabbed this guy. And then, uh, you know, I got in a boat and I'm like, I think I, I know where I'd go if I want to catch a Chinook. So I went and pulled up in this, slough that was called Cuda Jacks. Um, and it was this clear slough that ran into the connect talk and the connect talk at this, this time of year is kind of offset due to the melt off and stuff like that. And either way, the guy started swinging a fly in there. I was anchored up out of a boat and he hooked, hooked a Chinook, landed it, hooked another one, landed it. And he goes, you know, Trevor, that was a great day. Let's go have it like a, like a glass of whiskey. And, and like, I'd been fishing for two, like, two hours. And so I'm like, sweet. So we go back to the lodge and, and, uh, and I remember the guide meeting that night. Right. So we have a guide meeting every day. And, uh, my boss, Rick is like, kind of like scolding the rest of the guides. Right. Cause they're like, dude, this guy's going to take your job. If you guys don't figure this shit out. 
And so I go. And so after that, they, uh, they pulled me in the office, uh, him and a guy named Mike Sanders They go, do you want to, do you want a job being a fishing guide? And I go, yeah, yeah, it looks great because like I'm watching fishing guides come back with like extra beers and maybe a box of flies or a fly rod or something. I'm like, and I get to spend all my time on the river. So this is, this is, this is sweet. So I decided to start from there essentially. And so I just essentially got it Alaska and then I would come home and be a steelhead bum. Okay. I've got so many questions yeah. in and around this. Okay. So for okay. starters, did you ever end up missing camp work? Because those days on the water with people all the time, especially when you're not a people person, do start to uh, accumulate. Well, yeah. But the thing is, is like when you don't know that you're a people person, like the people skills come along with it, right? Like it's one of those things where you have to be thrown in the grinder. Like, cause look, I was, I was super nervous cause I didn't know what I was getting into, but, but the best way to learn anything is just get thrown into it or being, get thrown to the wolves and, and you figure out who you're going to be after coming out of it. And so, yeah. um, and so no, no, I, I did miss it a little bit just cause I had friends down in the village uh, I enjoyed, I enjoyed going out and fishing, but quite frankly, I, I like to hunt, you know, I want to go, I want to go catch fish, but now I've got to take guys who can't cast so well and, and sometimes don't listen. I got to put them on fish, you know, and, uh, and regardless, it was great. I got to rip around and be a wild man and, and do something I really like to do and get some money for it. Why do you think it's always Alaska? I feel like whenever I do these podcasts, it's either always Montana or Alaska. But Alaska is the is the recurring story I hear. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because and this is so I get so I get a lot of messages every year from young guides, and they go, "Hey, like, how can I get my foot in the door? How can I get my foot in the door?" And I and this I said the same thing. I go, "Well, look, go go." go apply for a job for an outfitter in Montana or go up to Alaska and do the same thing I did. Okay. Meaning tell them, go up there and go, Hey, um, I'll work a, a, a season as a camp hand, learn the ropes, uh, get to know the whole, the whole operation from, from, from top to bottom. And then, and then the next season will be super easy. Okay. And then especially when guys, they have a, let's say they have a business back home. Okay. Well, when you go to Alaska for, an entire summer, you know how many clients you have every single day for months at a time in your boat. So now you have a lot of clientele to a go, Hey, like, Hey Jim, do you want to come uh steelhead fishing with me down in, uh, on the Olympic peninsula? And he's like, you know, I've always wanted to do that. So there you go. It's super easy. So you got a lot of people to pull from. And then, uh, here's the next thing. Um, did, I tell guys too. So you're in a boat with, with two guys or two gals or whatever it be. Okay. These people are far more financially set than you are. Okay. They've been alive longer than you are. They're probably more educated than you are. So you're teaching them fishing, right? So you have 10 hours to pick their brain on on anything or, or just, Hey, just if you're interested in people, you can hear their life story, but you can get uh, financial advice, marital advice, um, whatever, or guess what? Oh, if you're in Florida and you're passing through, like you can come stay on the couch and I'll take you uh, uh tarpon fishing for the day. So, 
um, your network, right? So you get to, you get all these friends from all over the place that you'd never, you would never know unless you took them fishing. You're selling yourself and, and, and the guys that are outgoing and the people that are willing to, um, that are willing to explore have the most cards to play in every deck. And then if you show some guy a great time, I mean, they'll, they'll do whatever you tell them to, and they'll be your best friends. I mean, some of my clients are some of my best friends straight up. Yeah, absolutely. No, those are all fantastic points. And you're right. I remember when I was guiding, I did, I got to pick the brains of scientists, financial guys, business owners. Mm -hmm. I learned so much just by, just by talking to, to people you're, uh, I would never have had 10 hours of access to would have cost me a fortune. No, no, exactly. And there's no, there's, you, you can't just meet this many people from this many different places around the world. I mean, they were from all over the place. They weren't just the States or Canada or anything. They were from South Africa. They were from uh, Japan, uh, Ukraine, uh, South America, blah, 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 blah. So, yeah. Um, yeah. And then, but, but think of it as an edgy, I mean, you're, you're going to school and, and like, and you should be, and you should be harnessing some of that, that power, right? Because I mean, geez, you can learn so much, or maybe, maybe this guy's got a, a sweet house on the beach somewhere. And maybe you want to take your, your buddies down there and go fishing for a week. And he'd, he'd open it up for you. Like do it. Just oh. never know. So speaking of school, did you ever end up going to college or doing any of that sort of? Um, secondary nope. education? No, I thought about it, but it was one of those things that I didn't want to spend the money on something that I didn't know I was going to use. Like if, like, you know, if, if I was going to go to to school, it'd be a trade, you know, I'd have been a plumber or an electrician or something like that. Something I know I would, I would be able to have an apprenticeship under and I'd be making good money as soon as I got out. Because quite frankly, um, I knew that I would drink my tuition away if I went to college, like quite frankly. And so I had buddies who all went to college. So guess what? I went to go visit them. I got the college experience. I got to drink the beer, play the beer pong, go to the football games, blah, 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 without paying the tuition. So I, I still felt like I got to live a little bit of that without, without doing that. And like I said, I, I knew I wanted to do something in the outdoors and um, just because I didn't want to punch the clock. I didn't want to go to the same place every day put your, put your card in, like, you know, I wanted to be as free as a bird and I wanted to, I wanted to be able to pick my own path for the day, you know? Yeah. So that, that was that. Yep. I understand. Um, let's just dive straight into Chinook for a couple of minutes or Kings, as you guys say down there. Mm-hmm. So yep. the King salmon, the Chinook salmon is one of my absolute favorite species and it's mm-hmm. obviously the fact that they get enormous, but they're also, they can be a technical fish. And I just want to talk through some of the, some of the different methods of catching them, if that's mm-hmm. okay. So yeah, I, I don't know, is it the same in Alaska? We use a lot of, on the Dean anyway, and in the Skeena, we use a lot of chartreuse and kingfisher blue. And I don't know if it's just confidence or that it tends to show up in murky water, because as you know, the Chinook like murky water. What are your thoughts and what's your experience with fly colors in Chinook? Well, it, it kind of, it's kind of dependent on the place, but in my, in my opinion, and I, and look, I've never fished the Dean. It's, uh, it's a, been a bucket list place for me, but I've, I'm always working. But from the places that I guide, 
you always have a title section, right? And then you always have your melt-off period, which is early season, and then you have your late season period, which is sunnier and clearer water, lower water, right? So um, so let's just start from the beginning. The first time of year, the water's big, right? And it's offset or off color. And so when I first started guiding, like the guys would run down and find a great spay bar. Well, that's silly. The first Chinook that enter the water or that enter the system are going the furthest. They're moving the fastest. They don't, they don't necessarily stop. Okay. So all the guys that are down swinging the big bars, it's like trying to throw rocks at uh, at cars going down the freeway at 80 miles an hour. You, you mean, you're going to hit one every now and then, right? But if you want to be successful, you anchor your boat off where the sloughs come into the main river because the slough um, and, and, or, or look at a fish trap or, or something like that. But I, I explain it like this. So if you have a big interstate like I-5 and then you've got a, an off-ramp into a rest area, that's essentially what it is because the whole contour of the river goes around the corner and you've got this big slough coming in. It's a lot clearer than the main river and it's got some movement and those Chinook will push right in there. And when they push in there, they stop. And when they stop, they roll. When they stop, they eat flies. Okay. And then they'll mill around there for a second. Then they'll jet back out into the main river and then they'll be on their merry way because so the first fish are going the furthest. And then, and so they're, they're moving the fastest and you, you have to find where they stop and fly color. Um, like I'm always a big, big fan of chartreuse, uh, the, you know, the closer I am to the ocean and then early season. And then as the season progresses, I go smaller, I fish more like pink flies, um, or or smaller, small dark flies, stuff like that. But in the first part of the season, I I'm gaudy. Okay. I want a beacon going across, going through the water because those fish are, um, they need to be able to see it. And, and those fish aren't like, if they, if they are going to eat it, they're not going to sit there and go, man, maybe I should eat that. They're going to smoke it, you know? And then, uh, and there was a, there's a place where I fish where we used to have one of the most epic tide sections on earth and it would be slow moving water. Um, and it would be about a mile and a half until it fell into the ocean and it would be walking speed and glassy. And especially when the tide was in, and then as soon as it would fall, um, you're, I mean, you're looking around, you'll see some, some V wakes here and there, but the water, the tide would start to fall. And that water that was almost like a pond started really starting to move. Right. And then you start to, you start to hear them, you start to see them. I mean, and here they'd come the purple backs, the purple back critters, the silverback pygmy dolphins, they would start start blubbing up and then i remember uh it was like my first year on it this you know fishing kings this one place and i remember i had a guy and and we're fishing super light five and five uh t11 unweighted giant chartreuse fly guy hucks it out there fish eats it and i'm like fuck yeah and uh fish either way it spits it fish spits it and the fly i remember goes whipping around the air and it lands right below us right next to the bank and another fish smoked it like you know what i mean because at this certain at this certain part of the tide exchange or next to the ocean they were they were ultra aggressive 
the point where I started fishing wakers and stuff like that and trying to get a fish to come up top. And, uh, and, and it, it does happen, you know, just like Kings jump, which people say they don't, but that's bullshit. They do. But it's, 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 it it is rare, but, but it definitely happens. But, but when you get water, that's not moving super fast and you're fishing light, your fly is not far into the water. You can see when they're coming. And the problem is, is I'm standing right by my guy. I'm like, here he comes, here he comes, here he comes, here he comes. And you can see the water start to rise and start to rise and start to rise. And then all of a sudden his line just goes and it jacks tight. And he's got a fish that's covered in sea lice that had just come in. Um, the seals are right behind him and you got the surf pounding behind you. It's, it's, I mean, it's, and my face is melting, you know what I mean? Just because I, I love this shit. And, uh, so I'm, I'm pretty jacked up for my guys and they're just like, you know, it's awesome. I mean, I, well, I still love it. It's funny that you should say that about the wakers because that was actually my next question. And it's all piecing mm-hmm. together now because we obviously on, on the Skeena, but in particular, the Dean, you have, we'd fish deep a lot of the time, but in the tidal yes. section, um, I remember one time we had, a, a Chinook beach itself damn near beach itself, mm-hmm. chasing a, fl- a swung fly into shore. And uh, it was right at the surface too. And I was going to ask you if you'd experienced that. So it sounds like that does happen when the tide is, is coming in. Why do you think that is? Why are they more aggressive? I don't know because it's, it's, it's either, um, I don't know either. I think it's a, cause they're okay. Here's, so I think they're riding higher in the column first and foremost, a, they're higher up B I'm not fishing super fast water. Okay. I'm fishing slow water. So any fly that's going across there, like I'd have them throw it across and throw a downstream mend and then drop their rod to the, to the water and then move it, move it, uh, back towards, uh, back to the inside about a foot, which then speeds your line up. Right. And so it, it, it's, I mean, it's cruising across this this glassy water i mean it's making and guys are like do you want me to pop it or do anything like that i'm like no man just leave it as long as it's got movement just let it go and uh either they're uh most of the time they just kind of mess with it but every now and then you got a fish that comes up and smokes it you know but it's 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 a weird phenomenon it's it's not something that happens a lot Okay. And it's something that you have to do year to year. And like, we lost a, a big chunk of that title section. So I haven't seen it in a couple seasons, quite frankly. And so, uh, and, uh, and it's, and it's also really tough to get your guy to do it. That's the next thing because everybody is in the down the cross mentality, which is, which is great. Still love it. But, uh, um, you have to be able to adapt with, with the conditions, the tide and what you see. And that's where something I I really pride myself in is being able to take a situation that I've seen maybe before and be able to switch gears either with a water level or uh, push a fish or something and then go do something totally different and, and try and find some success. When is a situation when you would put on the dreaded 15 feet of T14? Oh, uh, sun, uh, high banks. Um, cause like for example, uh, later in the season, so we're talking late June, July. So we have a lot of sun, right? It's not always, just, you know, I, I, 
I would like clouds and shitty weather, quite frankly, but we get sun. And so what happens is, is the Chinook tend to go for cover or uh, mystery depth, right? So you're either talking deeper water or uh, tundra clumps. So we have tundra clumps and root wads. And so you got to get right down in them. And so, like, I mean, the, the heaviest I go is T20. I'll throw a 10-foot chunk of T20 on there and then and, uh, and try and get in there. But it's me on the really sunny days where I got to get in, the, in all the crap. And uh, we're going to lose flies. And I tell my guys we're going to lose flies and they shouldn't cry about it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Good advice. So just back to the, to the sink tip thing, because I'm always fascinated by, by Chinook and water clarity. Did, did you ever find that there were days when the water was just too clear? Yes. No, I hate it. In fact, I, uh, I, uh, I really load the later end of King season because of the sun. I hate, I hate the sun. I didn't, uh, if I wanted sun, I'd go, I'd go to Mexico. Okay, I, I yeah. want to be in a, my jacket. I want to have my coffee really close by, uh, right next to the shotgun, and then and have crummy weather because that's that's anadromous fish weather. And and they just become and the longer they're in the system, the 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 more finicky they get. And that's why I drop down much smaller. And that's and I go heavier. And like I said, I go I go throwing flies where we're going to snag up, but we're also going to snag a big chinook too. So how does their behavior change? They go deeper. Do they just get a little more sulky? Do they just get lockjaw? Yeah. 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 It's lockjaw because like, for example, like when I start in the morning, um, when I know it's going to be shitty, uh, there's a heavy fog, super heavy fog. And I have to drive the gauntlet to start my day, essentially where I'm at now. And which is the labyrinth of, of skinny water and, and, stuff that where root wads just appear overnight uh sometimes um same thing with those tundra clumps i was telling you about like guys will be waiting and this thing this tip of this two thousand pound root wad will come or a tundra clump will come out of the water just peek out and roll back in and it will disappear and if you don't keep your head upstream when the water's coming, uh, when those things are coming down, it can take out your, one of your clients. Okay. Cause they come in really shallow. And so, um, when in this, there's heavy fog, I know that I have to get the bulk of my, uh, I'm going to make most of my money and, uh, by noon essentially, because after noon, it's going to get a lot tougher. Meaning my first couple spots the day, I'm going to have a really good shot at catching a Chinook. And then once the sun gets really high, they really get funny, you know, and then they go, they go into either deeper spots, but I think it just messes with their eyesight a bit. So I go smaller, uh, heavier, and I essentially dredge the bottom and, and try and pick a couple up there. And I, and I do, you know, and we go, we go with, uh, uh, you know, intermediate lines, stuff like that which I'm not a huge fan of intermediate lines, but I am with Chinook in the sun. Do steelhead have a similar behavior or are they a little less sensitive to the clear water, bright days? Well, so where I fish, no, um, because I'm not I like, for example, I don't got on the shoots. I don't got on the Metau, the clear water, none of that. So, um, you know, I, I guide for steelhead in Alaska and I guide for steelhead on the, on the Olympic Peninsula. And this is one of my main questions I get from my clients, especially on the Limb Peninsula. They go, oh, it's funny. Like, oh, it's not going to be good fishing today. And I'm like, that's like, dude, that fish 
that fish just came in. That fish doesn't know anything. Okay. It was, it was getting chased around by some seals. Maybe a jet boat went over it. That's it. It has no, they, they didn't read your books, you know, it's in water temperature too. That's another thing. That's, that's, it's kind of a myth to me to, to a certain degree. Uh, I'm sure there's plenty of truth in it, but, but I'm not a big believer in the water temperature thing or the sun thing is when it comes to winter steelhead, um, uh, summer steelhead. Now, um, if I was guiding on the, the shoots or something, it'd probably be a little different. Um, because I think said those fish tri- travel further. I think it's, I think it has something to do with the further they travel and then uh, summer steelhead versus winter steelhead. But the fall hasn't bothered me a bit, uh, up in Alaska. And I've caught some of my, uh, like I had a six fish day on the Link Peninsula this season on a day where there wasn't a cloud in the sky. So I don't, I don't believe it. Yeah. That's interesting. Cause as you know, winter fish and summer fish are totally different. Just mm-hmm. mostly that winter fish, besides entering mature, they don't travel quite as far up. So maybe that's exactly right. what it is. That Because I'm always fascinated by the Deschutes stories. That's a very strange... Because the Thompson, they, when I fished the Thompson, it didn't matter when it was sunny. No. And the, and so the guys down there, they'll they'll be up, they'll have their headlamps on, they get in their spots, right? Because there's, there's people everywhere. And then, you know, once the sun comes up, they all take naps and then they go fish in the, the evening. And... uh and me, like if, as a fisherman, I want to get up early and get the early morning. I want to fish all day, and then I want to have a, a cold drink in the evening and 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 talk shit to my buddies. You know, I don't want to, you know, I don't want, I don't know. It's just it's not for me, and I'm I've been lucky enough to not have to do that. So, yeah. So, on the subject of steelhead, how did that all start with you? How did you get into steelhead fishing? Okay. So you, uh, I know you've talked to Jerry French before, right? Mm-hmm. So Jerry French was a friend of mine. I worked with him up in Alaska for, you know, one season, I think it was. And, uh, uh, I was, I was living out in the Olympic Peninsula. I was staying in a, in a small place on the Seeky river and I was a steelhead bum. That's what I did. And, uh, and I would fish around and fish around and, and, uh, Jerry was out had just started kind of guiding out there and whatnot. And I don't know if he'd been out there for a season or, or maybe two, I don't know, but, uh, he had a guy working for him and either way, I think they had gotten blown out that week. And the guy who was kind of working for him went to go home to see his girlfriend and ended up rolling his truck and couldn't come back out. So Jerry calls me and goes, Hey, do you want to be a, do you want to pull some guide days? And, um, I, I didn't, and same thing. I didn't want to be a steelhead guide because I like steelheading too much. And so I wanted to help my friend out. So I'm like, yeah, I'm going to, I'll, I'll help you. And so got guides license and started guiding steelhead and here I am, you know, and now I do it every single day of, uh, of the season where it's, when it's fishable, of course. So were so, you afraid that it was going to zap the passion out of it for you? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Because, um, because steel season was only so long throughout the year. And this was at, at this point in my life, I had just gotten, I just quit uh, a company called Daniki Outdoors. And so I was going from Alaska to South America, to the Bahamas, back to Alaska. And I finally, I'd been there for 10 seasons. And so either way I quit. So I was kind of starting over 
And uh, so I had to get another job in Alaska. And so essentially I had my whole winter back now. And so I was just being a bum and I was getting up early and fishing my ass off and drinking Folgers coffee and, uh, and, and living off the money that I had, you know, which, uh, which you make a, a little money go a long ways. Um, and so essentially I just started doing that and, uh, and yeah. And, and the first year you start swing fishing or swing guiding out here, it's going to be, a, it's going to be tough sledding. You know, I've known a lot of guides that have gone from being nymph guides to swing guides out here. And that first year is always really tough. Okay. They're going to, you're going to struggle. You're going to struggle because like the nymph guys, they're, you're used to winning, catching. And then when you start to swing, uh, AKA the starvation stick, you're going to have to work and you're going to have to be patient and you're going to have to, you're going to have to grind. You're going to have to grind them until you find them. And then, um, until, like you start, you start noticing things. And so I'm not sure how long I've been doing this now, but I've become really good at knowing where the traveling lane is, knowing where I need to be at what time of season. I know I need where I need to be at what water level on what river every single day. And so I get up at four, four thirty in the morning. I check the river flow. I make coffee. I make lunch. I hop the guys in the, the rig and we're gone. And then we fish, we fish all day and we come home and we barbecue and have some drinks. Um, and then may we catch some, may we don't, but it's been, uh, like this season for the short season we got was, was pretty good. And we had, uh, extremely low water. I mean, we had, we had no rain from middle of January until, uh, the second to the last day of February, we finally got like a, a decent, really good chunk of rain. So can can we talk about some of those things that you just listed that you've learned over the years? Like for yeah. example, where to be at what time in the season? Yeah, I've always exactly. struggled with that myself. It's easy with the, with a tidal situation, but when there's no tide involved, I never know should I chase them up to the to the top because that's where like you said the early fish have gone? Should I be trying to like time them with the yeah. day? I don't really know where to go. What what's your strategy? Well, yeah. Well, early fish are the sprinters. The 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 last fish of the season, they're the procrastinators. Okay, they're gonna dip in. They're gonna go. Ah, this looks like a good spot to uh, let her rip, and then they go there. But and then also early season fish. Um, so early season, we generally have more water, more rainfall, and so what this does is it puts more water in the tribs, and so the higher fish, trib spawners, or just higher up in the system, and so. They, blast, they generally blast through a lot of the lower stuff, and they start to slow down once they get up high. Or they'll hang out in front of the – if the if the trib's too low, they'll hang out below it, and they'll just kind of kick it and kind of get climatized, and then they'll go up the tribs when they get enough water. Um, but I'm always uh, – I always set up to where – where they stop is where you find them, you know. Uh, and like I said, the moving fish are fine too, but it's not as much of a sure thing. So I'm a big fan of stopping fish. Mm-hmm. What were some of the other things that you mentioned that you've learned? Oh, uh, well, traveling lane. Okay. And, the tra- and so yeah. How, that, so how do you, for people listening right now who have no idea what that is, can you please explain it? Cause this is key. Well, well, the traveling lane changes with every water level. When the water is low, it's at a certain place and the water is high. It's at a totally different place. And the water is mid. It's in an absolutely different place. And every play, every, at every height, 
the traveling lane changes. Okay. And some of the rivers, like for example, some of the rivers I fish, they don't change at all. I've been catching fish in front of behind the same boulders, uh, as I start, as the first year I started fishing them. So for example, okay, water's higher. Well, traveling lanes can probably close to the inside. Okay. And run the edges. The water gets lower. Well, those fish are probably going to move a little more at night and then they're going to hang out kind of in, uh, in deeper stuff. And then, uh, and so you have to be able to, again, shift on the fly, depending on what you see. And so, for example, again, to where I am now, I can look at the water level and go, okay, at this water level, this spot's going to hit, that spot's going to hit, that spot's going to be no more. This spot's going to be unweightable. This spot, I can, I can get one on a 10 foot cast. This one, they're going to be behind this boulder, blah, 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 blah. Okay. And then. And then that, and that's where people screw up out here, you know, and, 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 and that's the thing that, that actually drives me nuts. Cause when I go down to a spot, I really want to fish and there's a guy in it and he's essentially standing on top of the fish. And I sit there and I look at him and I row by and I'm just talking to my clients. And I'm like, that guy is standing pretty much right where we were going to catch that a fish essentially. And the guy's hucking to the other side and trying to put his best cast out there and, you know, Dude, casturbation at its finest. Do you think the spay rod is partially the problem for that? Because yes. I just can't help but think that the single hand rod would would take away a lot of these problems. It, it, yes, it would, but uh, it's it's mainly like I want I want uh, fishermen, not castermen, right? So so fish in your feet. So when I when I put you in a spot and I tell you to start short, I want you to start short. Because I don't know how many times I've literally started my day and I go start really short here and the guy throws one cast out. It's happened to me twice in my entire life out here where a guy has literally put his first cast and I'm, I'm going to put the other guy in. And guy hooks a fish and it's really right there. And everybody's like, oh, I've never caught a fish on a short cast. Well, no shit. You've never casted short in your life. You know, you always and, – and I have these guys that, that today – that I've been guiding for years that will not listen to me. And I go, Hey man, it would really, it would really make a lot of sense to start, start shorter. Like I'm really pointing, they're going to be right here. And he's like, okay, Trevor. And I start walking away and starts ripping out line. And he's like 10 feet into his running line. He's like, okay, now I'm going to start, you know, no, I'm talking your, I'm talking your sink tip. And this happened to me uh, last year. I'm in a spot on the Ho river and, uh, same thing. Guys like, man, I've never caught a fish on a short cast. I'm like, okay, well, this is like probably a really good spot you could try. So let's start with the sink tip. And he throws a sink tip out there. And the short, the short, uh, line grabs are the hardest grabs you'll, you'll probably ever, uh, you, you might ever receive fish smokes this fly and runs straight at him, uh, brushes, comes right at him, right straight at him. Candy canes his rod, almost crackers his rod hits him in the kneecap, jumps upstream, spits the fly and it's gone. Just like that. It, 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 it was, th- it was three seconds of his life, essentially. And I go, you believe her now, you know? And, uh, and it, you know, you're, you're never going to, you're never going to catch one short. If you don't try, you got to start short unless the, the, the water's too slow. When the water's too slow or it's too shallow, you have to start with a certain amount of line. That's why whenever I get to a spot, I lay it out for them to play it out essentially. Right. So I point out where they should be waiting, what they should be 
not casting too, if there's a snag there, um, if I want them to, to throw a couple more mends in or if I want them to speed their fly in. For example, there's the overmending thing is a problem. Like I, 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 I don't like overmenders, the guys that have to mend it. Right when this fly starts swinging good, they mend it again. And I'm like, fuck. And so it starts, I'm like, all right, here it goes. It's going to start swinging good. No, nope, no, nope, I'm going to mend it again. And I'm, you know, you just took all the life out of your fly. Um, and it's, uh, it's just brutal. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You mentioned earlier the starvation stick, which I think is hilarious to hear it referred to as that. Can you tell me your opinion on the contentious topic of nymphing versus swinging? Well, there. so, okay, so for example, th- this is the one thing here. Like, for example, when they went to no fishing out of a boat here on the Little Peninsula, it essentially killed nymphers. Okay, so what it either did is it turned nymphers into spin fishermen, so they can still nymph, but they're going to do it with a spin casting rod because they're uh, when you go do it from shore, uh, like if you go to Solduck, you're not going to have a lot of back cast room at all. And then now guys who are used to sitting in the boat with a cigar in their mouth, throwing five feet off the the boat while their guide puts them in the right lane, um, they're going to have to work. They're going to have to wade. They're going to have to think. Uh, you can't just throw your bobber out there and and watch it. So, I mean, like I said, I've got no problem with, with nymphing or cure fishing or anything, you know, cause for all, we all need a place to fish. But the thing about nymphing is, is it becomes a numbers game, right? And so that's something I'm not selling. I'm selling an experience. Okay. Like you're going to see everything and you're going to feel the flow of the water between your legs. We're going for the most aggressive fish. And you're gonna and you're gonna remember that fish when you go to sleep at night. You're gonna probably remember it next year. And if it's a really good one, if it tears your arm off, you're gonna remember it for the rest of your life. Um, now, when you're doing the bobber thing and nymphing, like uh, you're gonna mend, you're gonna you're gonna you know you're gonna listen to your guide and stuff like that. But you're essentially gonna be watching the, the bobber while you're going through some pretty epic wilderness. Um, and you're going to catch more fish, hands down. But, but those fish, it, it just doesn't seem to be, uh, like, as special, you know, because, like, there's times when guys have pretty epic days out here. And, and are you going to remember the, the first fish or the last fish? You know, like, I've had some pretty epic days uh, fishing in a lot of different places. And um, once I get to a certain number, it's not fun for me anymore because it's not – 
there's no chase in it. It's like the reason we do this because it's not easy. And if it was easy, everyone would be doing it. And not a lot of people have the patience to do, it, especially swinging. So, which is why, like a lot of guides out here, they're uh, I call them bisexual fishing guides because they do they bobber swing, they bobber fish to the swing run, and then they swing, and then they go back to bobber fishing, and they swing. So they they do both, right? Okay, it's best to keep they're your eyes open. They're bisexual. They're they're something, but and but but the thing is, is that the guy gets in that boat and. You know, the guy could be like, man, I really want to get one on a swung fly. And the guy will be like, okay, we'll go swing, but we're going to go nymph the spot here. And a lot of times what happens is those guys start nymphing, so they start catching fish. And then all of a sudden, they they either they really want to keep doing it or they like they, they're, they get super annoyed because they want to go swing up a fish. And either a guy doesn't want to put the time in swing because you, you, you do have to put in your time unless you're super, super lucky here. Um, because it can happen in the first run of the last run of the day. But, um, I just find that a lot of people don't have the patience for it. Um, and, and that goes for guides too. I mean, cause guides, there's a lot of gotta get them guys in, in steelhead fishing. Yeah. It's funny. Cause I do hear that argument often that it's a numbers game and, and for some it is, but for some people, it's not like, I know if I only had, I, I always would prefer to swing, but if I only had a couple hours and I was trying to get a fish to show my daughter, I'd probably throw yeah. on a nymph and Greg. And I can just imagine someone going by me on the river screaming, it's not about numbers. And me being like, dude, I just want well, one. I just well, want one people, fast. <laughs> look, some people are stupid. Okay. And, and like I said, I'm not going to bash anybody for the way they fish because I, look, I've been a nympher. I've been a gear guy. Like I used to love pulling plugs and I started stealing fishing uh, curing eggs and sand and, and fish and sand shrimp. That's how I started. And it was, and it was freaking sweet. I caught a lot of fish, but then I, I started, I picked up a, a spay rod. And so I go, man, I'm going to try this now. And, and dude, it was freaking hard. I mean, I was again, starvation stick. I didn't touch anything. And then finally I got to this tail out on a river called the Hoko and boop, hooked a really nice buck. And I was like, man, this is pretty cool. And I went out like, you know, the next day and I had a fish destroy my fly so hard. And, and on this river, there's a lot of low, uh, low hanging trees and there's a road that goes right next to it. This fish ate my fly so hard and it jumped it, it, it grazed the tree branches and a car that was coming by stopped right in front of me. And these two old guys get out and they're like, that's just you got a really nice fish on. I'm like, yeah, I'm like, no shit. And I think I'm like, I'm probably, uh, I don't know, like 18 at the time or 17 or something like that. And I'm like, you know, Hey, can you come down here and take a picture? And they're like, you know, 65 years old. And so I, there's like scurrying down this bank to try and take a photo, you know? And it was this, this like, it was probably a 14 pound hand that absolutely destroyed me. And, uh, and they had never fished that river before, so I took them fishing for the rest of the day. And they were uh, and they were uh, um, bobber guys essentially, and they they were throwing uh, gear rods. So I went and took them fishing a couple spots and, and said thanks. And, um, but it's just uh, you know, and 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 this is you know everybody talks about the progression of fishing. Right. You want to catch, you start by catching the most, you want to catch the most fish, then you want to catch big fish, then you just want to catch fish in place you would like to fish. Right. So 
it's always morphed into um, life is life is sweeter with with greater experiences, you know. And I will I will gladly take no fish all day until I get to a spot I really love and I get a fish there. And then guess what? I can reel my stuff up and go home and do laundry. You know, I don't have to stay out. I don't have to stay out there all day. Yep. I gotcha. Um, are you nervous about your future as a fishing guide who's passionate about steelhead? Absolutely. Yeah. As, as an anadromous fisherman, yes, absolutely. Because, um, you have, well, there, look, there's a lot of things against you. Um, you, uh, um, so you have, you, so as the rivers get closed down, okay, steelheaders just don't go away, right? So they flock to the last places that are open. Okay, so now, um, so what does that do to the fishery? Well, it puts more pressure on the fishery, okay? And then, um, you know, I, I had a, I had a huge, like everybody's got a plan in life of what they think they should be doing. And like, there's a reason I bought my house where I bought my house and it's two minutes away from my favorite boat launch. And I knew where I was going to put my clients to sleep. And it was in a town with people I really love a small town. And, uh, and, and, and quite frankly, when you, when you look at the, the, the state of steelhead, you, you, you hear the whirlwind and you hear all the opinions and it's, and there's, there's a lot of emotion in it. And, and, you know, the thing, the thing is, and, and especially out here in the Limp Peninsula, why I don't always buy into everything is because I look at my numbers every year and my numbers have not fluctuated by that much since when I became really good at what I did till now. Okay. When I didn't know shit. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I got my ass kicked and then there's still days where I still get my ass kicked, but there's a lot of days where I know what I'm doing and it comes to fruition. And so when people on the internet are essentially screaming at me that there's no fish here and I go, well, I, I mean, I got three today, you know, I'm not always the biggest believer in it, you know, and, uh, and I'm not saying that, that there's not a problem, but what I'm saying is, is that all my fishing, when it's gone really bad, okay, it's all been condition based. It hasn't been with a run, you know, the runs fluctuate. I mean, all steelhead runs or Nazareth runs have fluctuated to really good runs a little bit slower or big fish years versus smaller fish years and then um and so like for example okay last year was one of my best years ever out here okay and it was be and i attribute that to being the most conducive water conditions i, I may have ever seen out here meaning it i got blown out maybe a couple days Okay, so I was working every single day, and the water was like a sweet level uh, all year long, right? And so fishing was really good. And so, like this year, okay, polar opposite. Uh, we had no water from mid-January to the end of February, okay? And when water's low, fish trickle in, okay? And then when they feel a pressure change and when they feel uh, that there's some pressure precipitation come and they they can feel it it doesn't have to it doesn't have to to hit land yet 
you know, if a storm's coming, they're going to, they're going to feel it and they're going to shove. Okay. Some, some of them jump the storm sets when they come in uh, before the river's even done anything. And, uh, and every time I felt just a little bit of moisture this year, there was a fresh pot of fish, fresh pot of fish. And then also I've learned to be in certain places in low water versus high water. And that's another reason why people come out here and they think they're going to, they're going to catch a bunch of steelhead. They've got all the gear they've got. They've listened to all the YouTube stuff. They've got jungle cock on their flies. Um, but guess what? The river changed from the last time they were here. And guess what? Now the river is really low and they're fishing the same stuff that they fished when it was high or mid. And so they don't adapt. And the people who said the people who don't adapt here, they're going to get, they're going to get rolled over. It's going to be bleak. But if you, if you've, you know, if you adapt with it, you're going to find some fish. And like, for example, this year in February, I, I encountered 37 fish in 20, in the 28 days I had in February. And in times where like, I'd never fished some of these rivers that low. This was, I mean, for example, the whole river was at 740 CFS, which is probably the lowest I've fished it in the winter time. When usually I'm used to fishing it from uh, 1500 to like 3000 CFS, let's say. Uh, so, so really low. And so again, you have to adapt and you're not going to learn anything by coming out here for three days a, a month at all. And so, and the problem is, is that too, um, and like I said, I'm not saying we didn't have a tough year, but I'm just saying that when you come out here for three days of the month, um, and you haven't, and you go to a river that's maybe changed, and you haven't done your homework, and you haven't adapted to what the river conditions are, you're not going to catch any fish. It's going to be hard. It's already is hard. It's winter steelheading, you know. But um, the the state of anadromous fish is it's it's a tough one right now uh, because I've molded my entire life around especially this fish, which is, which is steelhead. And then everything else comes along with it, but there's no fish that, that has moved me like this one. And so that's why I put my feet down here in Forks, Washington. Um, and I, and I still have to travel for it, but no, it is, it is scary because there's a lot of factors and everybody's got an opinion on it and, and nobody has an answer. You know, I mean, okay. You look out in the ocean, geez, like, Okay, ocean conditions are good one year. They're not good the next year. We don't know how how big the commercial fishing thing is out there. Or what's getting scooped up? We don't know. How, we don't necessarily know how far those fish go if they're getting scooped up somewhere that's nowhere near their home river. Logging, um, uh, overpressure, gill nets. Um, you you can go with the. Uh, uh, fish mortality after, you know, hooking fish and stuff like that. And I can tell you how many fish I've killed here in the last 10 years. Okay. And it's, and the number's four. Okay. And every one of them sucked. And, um, you know, uh, half of them were dead on arrival. Half of them, I tried to revive them. And you got a guy who loves steelhead fishing who came from Pennsylvania and he hooks his steelhead and, and he reels it in and it's bleeding. And you, I mean, you see his heart sink because, you know, he doesn't want that. And, and I know as well as everybody else that every fish that hits the spawning bed is it we need every fish hitting the spawning bed because in order to make more fish, they have to spawn. And so just trying to get them to the spawning beds kind of the main thing is as well as we can you know 
Um, but, but, but there's, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen, but there, but you got to have a plan B if you're going to be a Najma's fishing guide. So there you go. What's your plan? What's your plan B? <laughs> uh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to divulge that yet, but, uh, but, uh, as far in the fishing realm of it, but what I have done is, and, and this is what it comes down to. For example, when I talk about two young guides, guides coming up. Okay. Because for example, I've known a lot of guides who are a lot older than me and they, they ain't got a pot to piss in. Okay. They haven't saved their money. Okay. They've been renting, they've been doing this and they've been doing that. They've gotten nothing. And so guess what? Now, uh, now, uh, they don't want to row a boat anymore and now they've, they've got no retirement set up or nothing. And so essentially, um, you know, save your money, get your, get your Roth, uh, IRA or a 401k and max it out every single year or go with, uh, or get an investment property. Like right now I do, uh, so Airbnb, when I go up to Alaska, my house gets Airbnb out all summer long and it pays the mortgage and does and give, puts a little extra change in my pocket. And I'm, I'm going to try and build some more of these. Okay. To have something else coming in, not just the, the, the fishing side, because you don't know what's going to happen. And like I said, I do have a plan, uh, after this and, but I'm going to, like I tell all people, I'm going to, I'm going to ride this out until it's, until it's done. I mean, but you're going to have to, you're going to have to stomp me out of here for me to leave. I'm not leaving. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, this is my home. So it's funny hearing you say, not funny, but it's interesting hearing you say, you know, I don't know how the numbers are low because I'm consistently seeing numbers maintain themselves. Mm -hmm. And that is an argument that I hear worldwide. I hear it here in Australia. I hear it in British Columbia and now I hear it in the States. Do you, where are you, do you like, do you, do you have some sort of conspiracy theory or some sort of thoughts on where these numbers are coming from? Well, I've got a couple of theories. Um, some that your, maybe your viewers aren't going to like so much. Maybe some will agree with. Okay. But again, I'm not, uh, I generally don't tip, through the tulips with a lot of stuff. I, I'm generally going to tell it how I think it is. So whether it's right or wrong, um, you can be the judge of that. But um, so here on the other peninsula, okay, we have a problem with, uh, for example, we have one creel checker for the entire Quileute system. Okay, and, and April, you fished down here, haven't you? Okay, mm-hmm. the Quileute system. Okay, you've got the Kalawa, you got the Bogashill, and then you've got the Solduck, which and they all come together, which is why the town is called Forks, and it makes the Quileute River, and then it goes out, right? So if you have one guy checking every boat that comes down, how are you supposed to get an accurate number about how many fish are coming up the river? One guy for for three rivers? You know how many so and there's there's about a Let's say let's say there's about four or five boat launches on the Solduck. You've got a few uh, on the Kalawa, and then you got four on the Bogashill. Okay, so is one guy going to be able to go to every single boat launch? Well, what if everybody gets off at the same time at around let's say between three and six o'clock? Well, you can't go to every boat launch. You can't get every every number from every uh, angler like. 
now the guys have logbooks, right? So I've been really adamant about filling out my logbook because I want I want to know I want to know how many fish are coming up here to be so I, I know what's going on. And like for example, this season when before it started kicking off, there was a huge push to close this place down from uh, the NGOs uh, and, a, and a whole bunch of other people were really, really adamant about trying to close this down. And again, like I said, last year, I did really, really good. And and I'm not the guy that's so married to my wallet and my business to where if I wasn't seeing fish and my buddies weren't catching fish, I would be sounding the alarm. I'd be like, hey, there's like there's a serious problem here, but like there's a tight knit group of of people here, and like we're fishermen, but we're we're not full of shit, you know. We uh, um, so for example, like if, if I go out and I don't catch a fish for a couple of days, I'm gonna call uh, a couple of my gear buddies, right, or or maybe some other fly fishermen, and I'm be like, hey man, what's going on? And <clears throat> like one guy be like, well, dude, I hooked 14 today, you know. And secure guy, okay, another guy who knows really well. And so I go, okay, I was in the wrong place at the wrong time, you know? And so <clears throat> I don't always put everything off of uh, off of fly fishing, and you can't, okay? Because like I said, if and, and that's, I think, a, a big problem out here is because we have guys who come out here and they come out and swing flies, and when they don't catch anything, they immediately blame the fishery, okay? Instead of going, you know what? maybe I don't spend as much time out here as I should. Maybe I should put some more time in out here. Maybe I'll learn a little bit more about the place and I'll be more successful instead of going straight to blaming the, the, the river itself. Okay. And like I said, I'm not, I'm not disputing in any way, shape or form that steelhead need help. Okay. Or chum like chum have dropped off huge all over the place. Places I used, I mean, where I thought that you could drop a nuke on top of them and they would still come back uh, as full as ever. But I've watched a, I've seen a, a bigger drop off in the Chum uh, up in Alaska and some other places. And then, and then uh, Chinook also, I think Chinook are, uh, are, are a really interesting species. And, uh, but but again, like I said, I just look at my numbers because look, that's all I can I, I can control and that's all I know, right? And I also know I'm doing it the hardest way you can possibly do it. And we're trying to do it the safest way we can possibly do it. And and when we catch a fish, I've got the minute rule. Once the fish hits the net, you have a minute to look at your fish. I've got an iPhone. I've, I don't have a fancy camera. I've got one, but I don't use it because it takes time. you got to get it out of the Pelican case. The guy's got to wipe off the lens. He's got to change the lens. And then they take a million photos of it. And then, the, you know, no. You net the fish. Head's in the water. And I can I can take I can take 30 photos in, in a really short amount of time. And two of those 30 are going to be really nice photos for your guy. And then the fish can be on its merry way and we don't handle them too much they can be right back in where they're supposed to be um so it's really about just trying to get your clients to to do what you tell them to do to a make sure that they have a, a chance to survive because being a catch and release fisherman your first priority is making sure the fish swim away or else you're not a catch and release fisherman if you're out here for instagram you're out here for the really the wrong things and, and your and your biggest priority isn't the fish which that's why we're all out here doing this.
quite frankly. So, is it just the Creel guy that they do get, that they get their data from? Well, no, it's, it's so you got your you got Creel, okay, for example, and then you've got like uh, so you've got the tribes who who gillnet just like up in up in BC, you've got the Thai fishery, right? Okay, and and this is a, another thing that I I never understood, especially out in the ocean too. Okay, our our test net fisheries, uh, uh, we 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 kill steelhead to figure out how many fish are, are around. That seems that seems pretty stupid, especially when we're trying to to like if, if, if fish are in danger, like if this is the way we're figuring out how many fish we have in the system, I feel like our, our system's flawed a bit. Okay. And then like, and, and I don't know. And part of me too, like when you talk about the conspiracy of things like, okay, for example, in the U S whenever you have like a, for example, a school shooting. Okay. The next thing you're going to see is a politician come on the, come on the news and they want to get reelected and then they want more fundraising. Okay. So now uh, you can't get more fundraising without blasting a crisis. Okay. And I think that that's, uh, there's a lot of people getting high on their own supply when it comes to that thing. Okay. And some of these people don't fish out here very much. And again, you're not going to get the donations you want unless you're blasting a crisis. And, and again, I'm not saying that steelhead don't need help because they do, but putting them on the spawning bed should be our main priority um, because this is how we get more. And then also um, if we cut fishing in April, for example, in April, we cut fishing out here. Right. And I used to fish all the way through April. Most people stop April 15th when some rivers close, but others are still open. Well, when we closed April, like, like, awesome. Like we're helping the fish. This is going to be great. Well, like the commercial salmon opener this year starts April 1st. So the anglers are off the water, the nets are in the water. So now you're getting March Celts going down and you're getting incoming April fish coming in. So tell me, how do we build interest on our bank account by doing this? We're, we're not, we're never going to, we're never going to, you know, we're never going to gain our numbers if we cut certain things and let other things go, for example, you know what I mean? Like it just, some things, some things really baffle me here. I mean, it's, uh, and people can point at WDFW and a whole bunch of things. So there's a lot of different opinions, but some of the stuff, honestly, it makes me scratch my brain and, and they'll always say no fun that we don't have the funding for it. Well, well, let us put something in place. But the problem is, is putting some things forward through legislation takes a lot of time and you have to have, you have to have some connections with people, you know, in, in that office. So for example, we have a, the permit systems, for example, when you go up to, to Smithers, you pay 20 bucks a day to fish the bulkly, right? Well, so there's no reason why we can't have a North Coast permit, a South Coast permit, a Skagit River permit. So when you go and fish these areas, you buy your daily permit. And then when you, when you buy your daily permit, uh, all the money that gets taken up from that permit goes straight to that area, right? For example, so we can get more creel checkers. We can put in a sonar system, okay, at the base of the river. Uh, we can, uh, um, uh, more law enforcement. Like that, that's the one thing about this year on the Olympic Peninsula. Okay. I, uh, I got checked, uh, five times 
okay, which usually I get checked maybe once a season. So there was way more of a presence this season than there ever was. And, and that's awesome, right? Because if you care about something, you got to protect it. And, and we need law enforcement straight up, okay, both tribal and for the general public. Um, but all those all those permits can be put back into those systems. So all the guys that fish the Queens and the Quinault and, and stuff like that, those go to those systems. Everybody who fishes in the Forks area all go to those systems. Everybody who goes and fishes the Skag fishes those systems. Um, and then we can actually have money that goes straight to it. It doesn't go through the 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 WDFW filter, okay, which is I mean, when I feel like when Money gets put in the general fund, okay, it gets squeezed out into a bunch of different places that don't help your area, right? So why aren't we why aren't we spearheading this and getting right to the point? Okay, and so and so I would like to see that's what I'd like to see here going forward. Um, I would like to see also a cap on guides, okay, before this place gets overrun. Um, which I we've tried to do in the past, but it's met some resistance. Um and who knows, maybe it'll come up again, or uh, I don't think we'll get to that point just because I think they'll probably shut it down before we get to that point. Um, so, but there's a way we can get funding for this and, and we can actually get an accurate number. Okay. And now when I say an accurate number too, okay. And people are going to be going, well, fish get caught out here numerous times. Absolutely. Okay, their fish get caught out here numerous times. So how do you then how do you do the math on that? Or how about if I don't see a fish checker for four days and I finally talk to the fish checker and I go, hey, like, can I give you my last couple days numbers? Well, every time they're like, no, we can't do that. You know, they, they, they won't do it. Okay, or like one day I was fishing. Um, on a river and there was a gal that had walked in uh, right below me and I saw her uh, I, I know the gal and she hooked like three fish I think landed uh, two of them or something like that and I get to the boat launch in a day and I talk to the creel checker and I'm like hey did you check the, the gal that came out of here she walked out of here and she's like no I didn't see her well I go well I know she she got uh, two wild fish and one hatchery fish like like are you gonna can you mark that down she's like uh, no we're not gonna do that but we kind of got a, a system on how we can uh, how we kind of factor that in for, you know, a fudge factor essentially. And so um, this always, this always puzzled me because this has happened to me a few times to where I haven't ran into a fish checker in, in days. And I go, Hey, so can I give you my last three days numbers and they won't take it. Okay. They only do that day. And so, um, and then you've got the no fishing out of a boat thing, which is to prevent encounters, right? Which has helped to a certain extent. So now if we're not encountering as many fish, which is what we want it to happen, but now they're not checking the amount of fish that we usually have. So are there less fish or are we not encountering as many fish as usual? That's what I'm saying. This is a, this is a broad subject. It's a subject that nobody said how, how do you how do you do the math on this? It's really daunting. Um, but there's some things that really defy a, a, a lot of logic. OK, for example, uh, they went to fishing out of a boat this year, which, you know, when they first put the, the no fishing out of a boat, I wasn't really for it because they didn't have anything for handicapped folks. Right. Like my dad. OK, because like, for example, when I take my dad fishing, 
he can't wade. He's got a he's got a walker that he'll wade with, but then his his legs are are messed up. So I'll sit him in the boat and he'll single hand swing out of the boat and I'll step him down the runs. Well, guess what? You've got no fishing out of a boat. So now this year they go, okay, we're going to do fishing out of a boat, but it's going to be on the Kalawa on the lower end and it's going to be on the entire Bogashiel. Well, by WDFW's own stats and metrics, okay, those two rivers are doing worse than the others or uh, than the Solduck. And they're doing worse than the hoe. So now we put boat fishing back in on, on the, the rivers that are doing the worst. Um, I, I didn't see the, I didn't see the logic in that because quite frankly, um, some people will, will float through and they'll catch their fish and they'll move on. But then there's the other guys that guess what they're going to make, they're going to make 10 to 15 laps through that piece of water. I've seen it while I'm swinging the piece of water and they'll do it on the other side. And they'll try and get as many fish out of there as they possibly can. Then they move on. They go to the second thing. And it's kind of happened that way anyway, just because with putting everybody on the bank. Well, now you can. So you've taken everybody out of the moving water and all the holding water now is just gets essentially pounded, which with a bobber and a spinning rod, you can you can you can hit everything in all the holding water, not essentially the moving water where guys can't wade and stuff like that. But. Uh, it's just, like I said, this whole thing is intricate and there's not a, a definitive answer. And that's why there's so many opinions. And that's why everybody's, I mean, everybody's at each other's throats and everybody thinks they have an answer, but, uh, but it's, it's intricate. Yeah. It's highly complex. It's funny. Cause I'll, I'll do a podcast on, you know, with somebody who's got one viewpoint and then I get flooded with somebody, you know, with other people who've got conflicting oh, yeah. viewpoints. And it just, it goes back and forth. And, oh, yeah. and it's not even the sort of thing where we can all sit down at one table and hash it out because it is so, it's seasonal and it's dependent and it's variable. Yeah. There's just too many vo- voices. Absolutely. And like I said, I get, I get yelled at by these people constantly, especially like on the internet and stuff like that. Because, uh, and again, these people don't spend a whole lot of time out here, but they're telling me how it is out here. You know, I, I believe what my eyes see. And so I go by that. And again, I don't have a a degree in fisheries, but I am on the water every day and I know what a spawning bed looks like. And I know that a lot of spawning beds don't even get checked until March. So, um, again, we, the data collection, like we, how are we supposed to have a, a clear cut deal when there's not enough people we don't we, we don't have people uh, compounding all this data versus the creel checkers versus the the people that are counting reds, especially counting reds in a certain part of the season. So and after every and when those reds get dug and they're there and they're playing as day like they were this year, uh, especially middle sole duck because um, it was gin cleared. Well, then when the water comes up and starts to blow out again, I mean, those reds, they, they essentially get covered and they go away. You can't see them as well. Right. And so if they don't get marked, they were never there. Those fish were never there. Okay. And what's a false red versus one that's actually a red. So again, it's intricate. And, uh, but main thing is, is I just want to be able to see, you know, seasons go forward, but see it, see it go forward, um, managed responsibly. Okay. But, 
but without the excuses, if we if we don't have the money for this stuff, well, let's go find it. Let's make let's let's get it. Why do we have to jump through so many hoops to get this legislation done? Okay, if we need more creel checkers, let's get another creel checker. Okay, and if we have to add a little bit of money on top of on top of the license, so be it. Mo- all my clients wouldn't even balk at that. Couldn't the guides? I mean, I think we could all agree that guides need to give back. It's kind of part of our duty. When you take the resource, couldn't the guides be volunteering their time or is that a conflict? Oh, of oh no, 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 not even. Well, uh, some people would believe it as a conflict of interest. And this is where, uh, this is where, um, like I said, we have some serious battles as far as the guide association or just guides out here and then certain members. Okay. Like, uh, you know, certain member members of, uh, the nonprofits, like for example, we could, like, guess what? We, we all know the all the guys know the stretches of the river. I would have no problem giving up one day a week to go to go count uh, spawning beds or something like that or take or, or take a, uh, somebody out from the state and do the same thing. And then the other guys would do that, too. We know how to row. OK, you don't have to pay us. We would do it in kind. No problem. Um, but some of these people will go, oh, well. You know, you guys are just uh, you guys will inflate the numbers trying to make it seem like there's more fish here. And, you know, you guys are in this just to make money. Well, quite frankly, you could look at uh, you could look at nonprofits blasting a, a blasting maybe a crisis to try and make as much money as possible, too. So so there's that, too. And said some of the some of the biggest people that tried to close us down were also out here fishing quite a bit. So there's, there's plenty of hypocrisy that goes along with the, with this game. And so, and again, I, you know, you're not going to pull, you're not going to pull it over me. I'm sorry. And it's, and it, it is frustrating because we, we, as guys, we, we love this place. Well, you know what I mean? We, we, we give a shit about it and it, it, it it's annoying when people point the finger at us for that kind of stuff when literally we're catching fish and letting them go. Okay. And guess what? There, there, there are people here that need to be better about handling fish hundred percent. And I talk to those guys just like I, um, the most angry I get all year is when I see people that are trying to target spawning bits. I go from zero to a hundred real quick and some things fall out of my mouth in front of my clients that aren't, you know, that aren't for church, you know, and, uh, and, we have a vested interest here. You know, we, we, we live here, you know, and we, and we do care about it and we want to see it go forward because we've molded our entire lives around this. So, um, we'll do whatever it takes, but, but other people have to follow suit. Say we would gladly give up our time. Every one of us, I guarantee it. Who would have to initiate that? Would one of the, well, you know, we have a, we have, uh, um, you know, well, you have WW, then you have the, uh, it's like the, I just, you know, you listen into all these Zoom meetings and then it's the, it's like a, you know, it's a bunch of steelheaders or a bunch of people invest in it that are advisory group, right? And so they all ask questions to WDFW. And then we try and mash things out. They lay out their outline for what they want for the future. Some people don't think it's enough. Some people think it's fine, but they want to add their little bit to it. And th- and that's the next thing I would I would that I would like to like to say is that uh, if you see any of these online things and you really care about this place, uh, it's time to it's time to log on your computers and it's time to take part in it. Like for example, the last 
online meeting we had about the Link Peninsula, there were 30 people on listening in on the Steelhead Advisory Board. That is, that's unacceptable. Okay, because I know there's more than 30 people that fish this place. And so um, pour yourself a drink, log on, um, at least listen up or, or say which or say your piece, you know, or else or else don't cry when stuff doesn't go your way. But quite frankly, we have, you know, I, I don't know what's going to happen. And I don't know how we can actually push all this stuff forward because a lot of this is, uh, is over me quite frankly, because look, I'm a, I'm a simple dude. I take people fishing. I do care about this place and I would gladly go up fishing days to help out or, or whatever. But, um, I just don't see clear path right now of people eggs again to give my money to that I believe, um, are in good faith. And so it, it's, it's tough, but, we would gladly give up a day of the week to go count reds early season when maybe they don't have the resources um, and fill in our logbooks. And that, and look, that's all we can do is fill out our logbooks as get as fishing guides. Um, I'm going to wrap it up now because we've, we've gone on for a long time and I know Lisa's cooking dinner. Is mm-hmm. there anything that I've missed in particular that you would like to add or to ask me before we hang it up? I don't know, but uh, I don't think so. But I'm sure we could talk for a couple more hours on a bunch of different subjects that probably should be covered, but you can only do so much in an hour's time. But I think we covered a good chunk of, you know, I didn't know what this whole thing was going to entertain. So I think we covered a good chunk of it. I think you've done great. It's thought provoking. If anybody does have any comment or would like to offer their perspective. I would, I'm sure that you're open to respectfully, you know, hearing it. Absolutely. Look, it's, it's the, it's the general public. You've got a lot of people to, and and look, we're, we're not all going to get along. We're not all geared the same. Okay. We have to find a way to come together for the species. Okay. If we want to keep doing this, if not like, then yeah, you can keep fighting and, and all this other stuff. But, uh, but we're going to have to find a way or we're going to lose it. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening. 